Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. Follow along as, as I read those verses. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a a profound passage that we have before us this morning. And Lord, I I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, for the the worship that we have already been able to partake in in exalting you and praising you. I pray we continue now as we open and look at your truth. Father, I pray for our pastor also as he preaches this morning in New Zealand that you would speak through him and encourage the hearts of the believers there. Lord, would you use his preaching to bring about the salvation of the lost there and the encouragement and edification of the church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you all know in two days, kids are going to dress up everywhere and adults likewise will dress up in costumes of their favorite characters all in celebration of No, Reformation Day. Come on, you bunch of sinners. Culturally, culturally it's known as Halloween, but as believers, we must remember this day on Tuesday as Reformation Day, the, the anniversary of the Reformation, because on October 31st, 1517, that is the day credited with the start of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle doors in Wittenberg. And this Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of that Protestant Reformation. And a lot led up to that point in 1517. In July of 1505, Martin Luther was caught in a terrible thunderstorm. And as he was traveling... There was lightning crashing all around him. Some records say that the the lightning struck so close to him that the, the pressure changes knocked him to the ground. And so in terror, he cried out aloud, Saint Anne, save me, I will become a monk. Well, he did survive. He made it out of the storm. And after making it through the storm, he made good on his promise to St. Anne and became a monk, though I suspect she probably didn't care. (laughs) Rather, as, as a monk, rather than becoming more confident in his standing with God because of all that he was doing, he became more concerned about it. As he looked at, at his own life and saw the, the depravity of his soul and the, the sin that was within him and compared that with the, the infinite holiness of God, he became more concerned about himself before that God. He would spend hours, up to six hours at a time in confession And then he would leave confession, remember more sin that he had forgotten to confess and go back to confession. He wore his priests out in the confessional. 
And it was in this place of hopeless despair, in this, this place of concern for his own soul that he plunged himself into the scriptures, hoping to forget about his own sinfulness. And there, it is there that he rediscovered truths that had been lost and twisted by the Roman Catholic Church. And he studied the word and he battled through the book of Romans and the doctrines that are found there until he got to chapter 1, verse 17 that says, the just shall live by faith. And through the the word of God, as he studied, he came to the realization that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that became the, the battle cry of the Reformation. And all of those hinge on sola scriptura. That is, that scripture alone contains all that is necessary for salvation and all that is necessary for spiritual living. The rediscovery of these truths led the reformers to take a stand and protest against the false teaching that permeated the the culture around them. They were completely encircled and surrounded by false teaching. And so in honor of the Reformation this morning that is just two days away, we are going to focus our attention in on the sufficiency of Scripture Because we, like the reformers, are surrounded in our culture as well by false teaching, by a a corruption of the truth. And just as the Reformation was a time when false teaching was clothed in a a sort of Christianity, so too we live in a culture of of confusion, that the truth has, has been confused from the, the confusion of the, the charismatic movement to, to the American cults that claim the name of Christ and lead people astray. To the, the society around us that, that claims this postmodern idea that you really can't know any truth at all, which begs the question, is that true? And that thinking that you can't know truth bleeds into Christian thinking and people start to question the Bible. Can we we believe what the Bible says? Can we know any truth at all? And all of these have one thing, one problem in common and it it is a departure from truth. And it's not a new problem. It's not a problem that has just recently arisen. It is not a a problem that originated in the 1500s with the Reformation. It, It is a problem that the Apostle Paul foresaw and warned young Timothy about. As Paul was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting his own execution, he penned this letter to Timothy. And recognizing that the end of his life was on the horizon, the tone of this letter becomes very somber as he focuses in on concerns that he has for the church and for ministry, namely false teachers creeping in, doctrine being distorted. And that's why he warns Timothy in, in chapter 3, verse 1, that, that last, in the last days, difficult times are going to come. People are going to abandon sound logic and obedience and righteousness. In verse 7, he describes those people as those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, look there, 
Paul says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, this is the world we live in. This is where we are. We need a rediscovery of the truths of the Reformation. We need the truths of this passage to to radically transform our culture. We need the, the truths here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, because it is here in this passage that we see three reasons why Scripture alone is sufficient for life and godliness. Three reasons why Scripture alone is sufficient for life and godliness. The first reason that Scripture alone is sufficient for life and godliness is because it has a divine source. It has a divine source. Look at verse 16 again. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And scripture here is, is specifically a reference to the Old Testament. If you look back just at verses 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have heard it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, what, what are these sacred writings? It's the Old Testament. Timothy didn't get like a a pre-release of the New Testament. And so this is the Old Testament that Timothy was well acquainted with, that he was very aware of from childhood. He didn't have the, the New Testament in his hand. He's just now getting 2 Timothy. But in verse 16, this is not just a reference to the Old Testament because it has a, a more broadly inclusive adjective, all that is inserted in there. While he is talking about the Old Testament, he now expands to include New Testament writings as well. And while they hadn't all come about, there certainly were some that were circulating at this time. The writings of the the other apostles and Paul's other writings are in view here. Don't just take my word for it. You can flip back to 1 Thessalonians. This is just a few pages to your left. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, and there Paul, Paul equates his own words with Scripture. He says, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but, as, but what it really is, the word of God. He makes that clarification, not because he was reading the Old Testament to them, but because he was preaching the truth to them and and they were accepting it as God's word. Peter also says that Paul's writing is inspired in 2 Peter 3, and then closer to the context here in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the scripture, Timothy. Guard the scripture. It has been given to us by the Spirit. You must must cling to it. You must grip it. You must guard it, Paul says. All scripture in verse 16 is just that, all scripture. 
both extant at the time and that which would be penned later by the apostles. Paul says that it is all breathed out by God. And here he coined a new word. It's the only time it shows up here in the New Testament. And it is a a word where he makes a compound word by joining God with breath. God breathed is the new word that he makes, theopneustos. The concept communicated here is that scriptures are the result of God's work in communicating his truth. And this is seen all throughout the Old Testament as as God actively provided the truth to his spokesmen. Then Jesus comes along and he's preaching the truth and he says in John 14, 25 and 16, 13 that the, the Holy Spirit would bring to the apostles remembrance of all that he had taught them so that they could record it. Right, that's what Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur's biblical doctrine explains it this way. He says, quote, God, through his Spirit, inspired every word penned by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. God directed the human authors' thoughts and actions so that what was produced is the very words of God. He produced exactly what he wanted his people to receive. Paul is making clear here in this statement the inspiration of Scripture that, that these are the words of God. And why, why is this important, right? Why, why is Paul telling this to Timothy? Well, if you remember where Timothy is serving, he is, he is serving in the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there is a, a clash of authority. Or if you remember back in Acts 19, Apollos shows up and starts preaching the gospel. And then Paul shows up and starts preaching the gospel. And the people of Ephesus start losing their minds. Literally, they riot because people are being drawn away from worshiping Artemis. Then in chapter 20, Paul meets up with the Ephesian elders and in verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's exactly what happened. You see that here in 2 Timothy in in 2... 17, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus that that swerved from the truth. So Paul commends to the elders of Ephesus God and his word. Why? Because it is truth from the very mouth of God. Absolute truth in a time of confusion. Absolute truth when everyone else is going astray and confused about what to believe. God has given us his very words. He's provided his words that he wants us to know in in a book. In a book. A book that that contains all that he wants us to know about his character, uh, about life, about his holiness, the riches of, 
and fullness of his wisdom that, that he wants to communicate to us found here. And it's this profound realization that, that led, that William Tyndale discovered, right? He realized that the Roman Catholic Church was, was keeping scripture from people. They, they, had, they were teaching that they, the common person can't even understand the scriptures. And so they shouldn't read it. They shouldn't know it. And they couldn't anyway because they couldn't have an English copy because it was against the law. Mass was in Latin, which nobody knew. And so the people never heard the word. But William Tyndale knew, realized this truth as he studied God's word. And he wanted to, to translate it into English so that the, the people would know it. And because it was illegal, he had to do it on the run. Eventually, he was captured and imprisoned and sentenced to execution by strangulation and being burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Why would they strangle him and then burn him, you ask? Good question. They would do that because they had realized that over time, the martyrs that they were killing had such a great testimony as they were being burned, proclaiming the truth, singing hymns of praise to God, that they started killing them before they burned them so that they couldn't speak. But Tyndale's last words out of his mouth were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Two years later, that prayer was answered, and King Henry VIII declared that every parish should use an English translation of the Bible that was based on William Tyndale's translation that he had done in hiding. Now, why, why would Tyndale do that? Why would he die just to translate the Bible? Why else except that he recognized that it is the very word of God? And we have to, we have to reflect on this for a moment. We have to pause and, and, and think about this book. That God has given us his word, the book you hold in your hand that, that rests on your lap right now is his very word. I love the question Piper asks. He says, have you ever been half as amazed at that as you should be? Do you recognize the profound nature of this book yeah, do, you, do you love it? Do you, do you memorize it? Do you study it? Do you cherish the word of God? Where are the Tyndales of our culture who love the word of God and want the people to know it so much that they, they give their lives just for the truth? Where, where would you ever possibly look for truth but from a divine source, from a divine author? Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness first because it has a divine source. It is from God himself. Second, Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness because it has a profound benefit. It has a profound benefit. Look at verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
Scripture is profitable. It's profitable. It means that it's useful. It is beneficial. It is advantageous. This term is used twice in 1 Timothy 4 to contrast the the temporary benefit of, of bodily exercise with the eternal benefit, the eternal advantage of godliness. It is valuable. It is profitable. And this verse lists four profound benefits that Scripture provides. First, it's profitable for teaching. Teaching. This is the word for doctrine or precepts. It is, it is teaching that comes from Scripture. It is what should be believed. It's, it's the same word used in, in 1 Timothy 4.16 when Paul tells him to, to keep a close watch on his life and his doctrine. It's the same word here. It's profitable for teaching, for doctrine. Why would I keep a close watch on my life and doctrine? Paul continued, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and yourself and your hearers. Where does, it, where does teaching come from? It, it comes from Scripture. It comes from God's Word. Scripture is, is valuable. It, it is beneficial for, for the truths that ought to be believed. If you want to know what you should believe in life, there's so much confusion, so much floating around about what you should grasp onto, what you should believe, what you should hold as, as true. It's right here. Because Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Scripture is profitable for truth, for, for teaching. It is God's Word. God's word is profitable for teaching. Second, it is profitable for reproof. Reproof, that's not, it's not a word we use often, right? Re- reproof. It means rebuke, to, to confront. It's stating the, the clear fact of someone's wrongdoing or uh, to, to bring about correction. It is, it is stating the, the wrong in someone else. It is confronting false teaching or false living. In Scripture, because it is from God and provides the, the standard for living in doctrine, it provides profitable for that teaching, therefore is the standard for rebuking and confronting wrong living or wrong teaching. This is why Lady Jane Grey was able to stand up for the truth and, and confront error in the time of the Reformation. You may know her as the nine-day queen of England. The Lord saved her through reading her Greek New Testament. That's just cool, right? No seminary students with an amen? Come on. No? All right. The Lord saved her. Her husband was made king and then quickly died, leaving her as a teenage queen in England. And she realized that she had to take a stand for the truth. She had to take a stand for the gospel. But nine days after she was crowned queen, she was betrayed and dethroned by her father and her cousin, who then had her imprisoned until she would take mass. But while she was imprisoned at 17, instead she debated Mary's chaplain on transubstantiation. She knew the scripture. 
She knew the truth and she, she couldn't just stand by as the gospel was distorted and twisted. So she stood up for it and debated these people against withholding the, the scripture. And she won that debate, but she lost her life because the queen had her quickly beheaded. She knew doctrine. She knew scripture. She knew the truth as a young teenage woman. And she used the word of God to confront error in the lives of others, to confront false teaching. And beloved, this must be our habit as well. You're like, well, I'm not talking to a lot of chaplains nowadays. But, but think about your life. When you confront sin, do you do so with scripture in hand? Parents, when, when you talk with your children, when they've gone astray, when they've sinned, do you, do you go to them and sit with them and correct them based on the word of God? Or is it based on your own personal offense? Husbands, wives, do you go to your wife and, and confront your, your spouse with, with the word of God? When, when your spouse has done something wrong, when your spouse has sinned against you or someone else, is it God's word that is the standard or is it your preferences? When you go to your friends, is it because they've violated God's word or because they have violated your feelings? Too often we confront people because we just didn't like the way they did something. Do you confront out of a concern for the glory of God or do you confront out of a concern for your own comfort and peace in life? Scripture is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. And third, Scripture is profitable for correction. Scripture is profitable for correction. This is the word for restoration. Correcting someone who has previously fallen, it is bringing them back to a, a place of, of restoration. And scripture has this, this profound benefit and power of accomplishing that. That's amazing. This is one of the most hope-filled, tremendous statements that a sinful human being could possibly read, that God's word offers the opportunity and the power for restoration. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and judging the thoughts and intents of the heart. As believers stray from, from the truth of Scripture, it is, it is God's Word that is the, the scalpel that cuts out the, the cancerous growth of sin in their life. It convicts and brings back to restoration. Through God's Word, people are saved, and through God's Word, people are sanctified. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, it's restoration. And fourth, Scripture is profitable for instruction. Instruction. Instruction is, is given so that people can make informed decisions, so that people can make wise decisions. Scripture provides information that enables people to live responsibly, to, to form proper habits in life. 
And this, this instruction is specific in this verse, right? It is instruction in what? Righteousness. It's instruction in righteousness. It's instruction re- regarding right behavior, just living, right thinking, appropriate living, right living. Moral integrity is in view here. Scripture provides the model for holiness before God. This is, this is what the lives of men and women ought to look like right here. I mean, if you're, if you're looking for a guide to life, if you're looking for instructions, it's right here. God has explained what life ought to look like. And when you step back and you look at these four benefits that are in this verse, you can see how they build on one another. See, proper doctrine is, is used to confront falsehood and wrong living. And that brings about correction in the lives of God's people, which then instructs them to live righteously. This is a profound benefit of Scripture. That for us, when we go astray, God's word is the corrective. Beloved, our commitment must be wholeheartedly devoted to the scripture with, with all of our lives, with everything that we have, because it is the scripture that has all that we need for life and godliness. It provides proper teaching on, on salvation, on sin, on restoration, on commitment, on marriage, parenting, the church, work, finance, joy, grieving, sorrow, suffering, Heaven, hell, the gospel, life. Scripture is the standard that brings an accurate charge against you. It corrects you. It instructs you. What more could you possibly want in life? This is the picture that is painted in Psalm 1 of the tree planted by streams of water that yields much fruit. Why? Why does it yield much fruit? It's, it's because that person meditates and loves the law of God, loves God's instruction. These are the benefits that we read earlier in Psalm 19, that God's word restores the soul, it makes wise the simple, it enlightens the eyes, it rejoices the heart. That is the word of God. It's astounding. God's word given for his glory and for your benefit. Do you cherish the word of God? Beloved, we know these truths. Yet so often from Monday to Saturday, our Bibles sit on the desk and collect dust. If you're walking through life and you're wondering what you should be doing, if you're you're confused about living, you're unsure about your your purpose, you've fallen into some sort of sin, you're, you're... you're frustrated with the day-to-day grind. God's word has answers and help for you. It's all right here. And you may be there this morning because you simply haven't believed the truth of the gospel. You, you have not believed and come to faith in Christ. Unless you recognize your own sin and the punishment that you deserve 
and come to Christ in faith for salvation, you're going to be left in the dark for the rest of your life. Things will continue to be meaningless and confusing because you were created with a purpose. That purpose is found in Christ and in his word. You must cling to the word. And I found that to be the commitment of many men in a project that I had to do about a year ago in my historical theology class. And the project was to, uh, to trace the, the, the spiritual heritage of Placerita back to the Reformation, um, which was just a fun thing to do. But as I... I looked through tons of documents and lots of old photos where many of you looked a lot younger than you do now. (laughs) Something I noticed is that for the last 55 years that PBC has been around, despite the seriously bumpy and rocky road, there has been a long-standing commitment of the men behind this pulpit to the word of God. And my desire... My desire is that for the next 55 years, that would continue to be the case, that the the men that stand behind this pulpit would preach nothing but the word of God, but not just that, but that the people in all of these pews, that all of you would stand for the word of God, and that that truth, you would cling to it so tightly in your heart that that it would captivate every area of your life. The benefits of God's word in the lives of his people cannot be overstated. And the benefit of scripture is not aimless. It's not just a rule book to uphold. We saw that scripture is sufficient for life and godliness. First, because it has a divine source. Second, because it has profound benefit. And finally, scripture is sufficient for life and godliness because It has an ultimate purpose. It has an ultimate purpose. Verse 17 starts with a purpose statement, the word that. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? This is why, Timothy. This is why right here. This is why God gave us this word. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God here is talking about believers. It is talking about those who follow the Lord, those who have faith in Christ. God's word is provided to make them complete, to make them competent. Other translations say proficient, adequate, perfect. It's like picking someone to fill a, a position and some, you ask someone their opinion and they're like, oh, that guy's perfect for the job. They're they're equipped well. They will accomplish that task well. The word equipped is the same word as competent there, but it's passive to indicate that it is God's word that acts on the lives of believers to bring them to this point of being equipped. You don't just wake up one morning and you're like, I'm ready to go. It's God's word that gets you there. It makes believers ready to be useful. It equips, prepares, finishes, fine-tunes them for service. The word teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains so that you have the opportunity now for every good work, literally every kind of good work. 
every aspect of the Christian life. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says is your, part of your purpose. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works that God has prepared beforehand. God created you, saved you, gave you purpose, and equips you to accomplish it all through his true and living word. And we are just in a broken world, surrounded by broken and confused people that are are just trying to just make it through life and can't figure out, they can't figure out why life isn't working. Right? Do you talk to these people? Do you talk to them? You might be here, you might be one of them. You just can't figure out why life isn't working. And as believers, we need to be the ones that look around and say, I know why. I know why life isn't working for you. That's why we have a biblical counseling center here at PBC, right? Because the scripture offers all that is needed for life and godliness, and we want to see believers grow and be equipped and to serve. And as believers, we're called to two primary areas of service. The first, we're called, we're called to serve the world by sharing the gospel, by being a light among the darkness, by being salt in a tasteless world. We're, we're called to point others to Christ. We're also called to serve in the church. Serve in the church. We're, we're believers where all of you are to, to do the work of the ministry with one another. First Peter 4 explains that each of you were given a gift in order to serve one another. And so as you consider your life, as you consider God's word, believer, what are, what are you doing in the world? And what are you doing in the church? God gave his divine word with tremendous benefits to make you competent for every good work. So what then are you doing? Ephesians 4 explains that that the elder's job is to, to come alongside you and to equip you for the work of the ministry with the word of God so that you can do the work of the ministry. And so often today, right, in churches, the view is like, hey, the pastors and elders, it's their job to do the work of the ministry. That's not what the Bible says, right? This is the purpose for which the reformers gave their lives so that we could sit with God's word in our laps and learn how we could serve him for his glory, for the growth of his church, for the benefit of other people so that we can grow in holiness? Will you reach out to this lost and dying world? Will you consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds? I mean, as we sit here 500 years after the Reformation, will we be a congregation that is faithful to the word of God, believers who carry the, tor- the torch of scripture faithfully? 
Do you want to see great reformation in, in our time, in our nation, in our culture? You think, well, Tim, that is just too lofty a thought. We think about the Reformation of the 1500s with these, these giants of men and women who stood for the truth like Luther and Zwingli and Huss. Like, I don't have a name like that. I surely can't live up to that kind of legacy. But they're not the stars of the Reformation. It wasn't their own cleverness. It wasn't their own church marketing strategies or seeker-friendly tactics. It was the word of God that is the star, that is the power behind the Reformation. That's what Luther said at the end of his life, reflecting on all that had happened. He said, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. The Reformation Wall in Geneva, if you've ever seen it, it's a historic statue of four of the Reformers that stands as an emblem to their faithfulness, but also stands as a testimony to what drove them. For in their hands, they hold their Bibles. And one detail that often goes overlooked is that not only do they hold their Bibles in their hands and clutch it tightly to them, but each of them has a finger inserted into the pages of Scripture. And there they stand through rain and snow, day and night, heat and cold, a stone monument testifying not only to, to the, the faithfulness of the men who stood for the word, but testifying to the word of God for which those men stood. Throughout history, great reform has always come, not when, when great men and women stand up and do something, but when ordinary men and women like you and like me cling to the truths of Scripture and will not let it go and will hold fast to it and proclaim it faithfully. Will you be the men and women who know and cling to God's word? Will your life be a commitment to the scripture or a commitment to the fleeting passions and entertainments of this world? Take my life, Lord, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We just sang that. Beloved, will you stand for the word of God knowing from whom we have received it? Regardless of what threats may come our way, imprisonment, death, will you cling to this book knowing that you've received it from a divine source with a profound benefit for an ultimate purpose? Let us cling to his word, not merely with our words, but with our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I confess too often to not think highly enough of your truth. May that never be the case for us, God. Let us always be those who are faithful to cling to your truth and to live it out in our lives for your glory and the benefit of the church. In Christ's name, amen.